SBS, a world of difference. You're with NITV Radio, on mobile, online and on radio. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land NITV Radio broadcasts from, the Camaragal people and their elders past and present. We also acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes and clans we broadcast to, from the mountains to the plains, from the desert to the sea, from fresh water to salt water. Yiridamarang, hello, I'm your host Luana Grant and welcome to NITV Radio for this Wednesday, the 15th of November. Coming up on today's show, an interview with Camilla Royman, Dean Foley, as NITV Radio chats to Dean about an opinion piece he recently published to his website about his hometown, Gunnedah, in New South Wales, which has recently come under the spotlight with concerns arising about potential connections between mining giants and alleged racist extremists in the region. NITV Radio also shares a story about the upcoming Pacific Games, which will be held in the Solomon Islands, with the opening ceremony taking place this Sunday on NITV. And also coming up on the show, I chat to Wiradjuri man Bernard Higgins, who will feature alongside eight inspiring speakers at the inaugural TEDx Wagga Wagga this Saturday at the Charles Sturt University Riverina Playhouse on Wiradjuri Country. All these stories and more coming to you after the latest news. Australia Day 1972 the first Aboriginal embassy directed outside Parliament. The native title legislation must be amended. And they've walked this land so many times before anybody came. I am sorry. In this bulletin, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says the eradication of Hamas remains the top priority for his forces. Detainees released after last week's High Court ruling remain under police supervision. And in football, Socceroos set for tomorrow night's first World Cup qualifier against Bangladesh. A new traineeship program between the Perth Zoo and an Aboriginal college has achieved a major milestone with its first students about to graduate with a conservation qualification. Over the past year, seven students from the Clontarf Aboriginal College have worked alongside animal carers, education officers and horticulturalists at the zoo. Two of the students are on track to graduate this year with a Certificate 2 in Conservation and Ecosystems Management, while the remaining five will continue working at the zoo and are expected to graduate at the end of next year. One student, Ezra Fejo, says the work has helped offer new opportunities and connection to country. I wanted to work back home on, on the land and um, when I heard that um, there's, the zoo was opening up to uh, that Cert 2 in Conservation, I thought, oh, that'd be, that'd be perfect, you know, I thought I'll try something new as well. And um, definitely come to the zoo, I feel, feel very at home. Benjamin Netanyahu has said that defeating Hamas and ensuring the safe return of hostages remains Israel's top priority. He says the next priority after that is making sure something similar to Hamas does not return. 
there has been ongoing concern in the region and the international community about the potential for wider and more intensive hostilities with regular skirmishes between Hezbollah and Israeli forces on the Lebanon border. But the Israeli Prime Minister says he has instructed the Defence Force in the north to prepare for any scenario. Our goal is, first of all, a complete victory over Hamas in the south and the return of our hostages. Second, of course, is to ensure that after the war, Hamas does not return. Something similar to Hamas does not return. We will ensure that as well. Third and no less important is to take care of the northern sector. In the northern sector at the moment, there are heavy exchanges of strikes. We are striking Hezbollah, but my instruction to the IDF is to prepare for any scenario. I do not recommend Hezbollah trying the state of Israel. That would be the mistake of their lives. A police operation has been launched following last week's High Court decision on indefinite immigration detention. The government says authorities are monitoring the whereabouts of a number of released detainees who are convicted criminals, including three murderers and a number of sex offenders. Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill says the government has released them under strict visa conditions and knows exactly where they are. Minister for Aged Care and Sport Annika Wells has told Channel 9 that the government had no other choice but to release the detainees into the community. At the end of the day, this is the separation of powers and their separation of powers is there for different jurisdictions to keep checks on each other. And whilst we argued forcibly against this decision by the High Court and some of the details that you're talking about formed part of our submissions as to why these people should not be released, we have to abide by the decision. The proportion of Australians who have a strong sense of belonging has reached a new low. The 2023 Scanlon Foundation's assessment of social cohesion reveals that only 48% of people in Australia feel they are part of a community this year, compared to the 52% in 2020. The report has also revealed that financial and cost of living pressures are affecting more Australians, with 48% citing economic issues as the most pressing issue, followed by 14% who are concerned about housing affordability. Chief Executive of Multicultural Australia, Christine Cassley, believes that navigating through the pressures faced in the wake of COVID-19 pandemic has influenced the public's perception of a cohesive Australia. So what we really need to do as a country, I think, is work on building that resilience, work on those um, strengths that we all need to have in terms of being able to reach out, connect, communicate with each other, learn how to straddle differences and learn how to come together with our different histories and stories and experiences. There's a real piece here for us, actually, and an opportunity for us to create true belonging in Australia. Medical experts are urging people to use face masks to avoid the spread of COVID-19 as a new wave of the virus moves through the community. The University of New South Wales says case numbers and indicators of severe disease began to emerge in Victoria in August, while in Queensland the number of COVID-19 hospitalisations has gone up sharply during the last few weeks, even as immunisations have been on the decline. Infectious diseases physician Dr Paul Griffin has told Channel 7 that people should make regular use of masks, especially in confined areas. Look, I think it's something we should strongly consider. I mean, I think it's clear we don't need rules and mandates around masks at the moment, but we should really be encouraging and um, facilitating mask wearing as much as possible, particularly in high-risk settings and settings exactly like you describe on a plane where you're in really close proximity to people for a long period of time. So absolutely we should use masks more. 
the third party behind Wednesday's Optus outage that left millions of Australians without phone and internet services for over eight hours, has been revealed to be a company from Singapore. Singtel Internet Exchange, also known as Styx, is the unnamed international peering network referred to by Optus in its statement released on Monday regarding the incident. In its statement, Optus says that the outage occurred due to a failure in a routine software update. The failure appears to have occurred from the third-party network. The European Union says their goal to supply Ukraine with 1 million rounds of ammunition by spring 2024 will likely not be reached. German Defence Minister Boris Pistorius says EU members are working together with industry to ramp up production. EU Foreign Affairs Policy Chief Joseph Borrell says that the European defence industry is currently exporting 40% of its products to third countries. He says they are looking at encouraging manufacturers to shift production to what he has called the priority market in Ukraine. Well, it doesn't mean that we already have one million shots ready by March. So maybe we will not have one million by March, but it will depend on how quickly the 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 orders comes to the industry and how quickly the, the industry reacts. Rosmaria. Almost 50 new species of spider have been identified across Australia, half of them in Western Australia. A research project published in the international journal Zootaxa has documented 48 hunting spiders. The decades-long study has been led by Dr Robert Raven. He says less than 3,000 spider species have been identified in Australia, but he is predicting there could be up to 15,000 on the continent, a number that would represent one quarter of the world's spider population. And in football, the Socceroos are set to begin their long journey to the 2026 FIFA World Cup tomorrow night against Bangladesh. The game will be held at Amy Park and is set to kick off at 8pm Australian Eastern Standard Time. Australia will also hope to get off on the right foot in their World Cup qualifiers in a group that also features Palestine and Lebanon. Midfielder Jackson Irvine says the team has a great mix of experience and talent. You look at um, the likes of Keanu and Aidan O'Neill have stepped in over recent months and done fantastic jobs. Got a really good blend of these young younger players who are in top form with their clubs and guys who've got really good experience at, at this level. And now for a look at today's weather. Broome, mostly sunny, 33. Perth, partly cloudy, 29. Adelaide, also partly cloudy, 23. Melbourne, much the same, 19. Hobart, also partly cloudy, 19. Aubrey-Wodonga, mostly sunny, 27. Canberra, much the same, 26. Wollongong, cloudy, 23. Sydney, a possible shower, 26. Newcastle, partly cloudy, 28. Brisbane, also partly cloudy and 31. Townsville, sunny, 31. Cairns, mostly sunny, 32. Alice Springs, partly cloudy, 41. Darwin, a shower or two and a possible storm, 33. And the Torres Strait Islands, mostly sunny, 33. And that is NITV Radio News. Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. TV radio, on radio, online and 
Mobile. Welcome back. I'm your host, Luana Grant, and you're listening to NITV Radio. Still to come on the show, NITV Radio shares a story about the upcoming Pacific Games, which will be held in the Solomon Islands with the opening ceremony taking place this Sunday. And I chat with Radjuri man Bernard Higgins, who will feature alongside eight inspiring speakers at the inaugural TEDx Wagga Wagga this Saturday at the Charles Sturt University Riverina Playhouse on Wiradjuri Country. But first, Camilla Roy man Dean Foley chats to NITV Radio about an opinion piece he recently published to his website about his hometown, Gunnedah, in New South Wales. Known for its vast coal mines and rich agricultural history, the small town has recently come under the spotlight for reasons far removed from its industrial significance. With concerns arising about potential connections between mining giants and alleged racist extremists in the region. NITV Radio's Birchentung and Dami has more. Dean Foley, founder and CEO of Baramal, you've published an opinion piece on your website raising the alarm about perceived racism against Aboriginal people in your hometown, Canada. You also talk about tensions between mining companies and local communities. Now, can you give us some background to what's happening and how this situation is so alarming and has led you to publish a scathing opinion piece? The racial tensions have been growing especially with the growing inequalities between, you know, Indigenous people and non-Indigenous people here, especially in relation, you know, to the mines, which are, you know, recording uh, record profits. But it really stemmed uh, right in this opinion piece and and having a yarn to you from a racist, really racist and threatening comment to an Aboriginal community member of Gunnedah uh, with this uh, alleged mining employee from Whitehaven Coal threatened to do a a similar thing to the unfortunate incident which happened over in WA with the Aboriginal boy where he was bashed over the head with a pole and yeah so this employee's you know threatened on Facebook that you know you'll wrap a head around her and you know hope hope she gets hit by a truck and die painfully and that kind of stuff um, and caught her what is it Coon, I won't say the other um, word attached to it, but, you know, call it Coon. So, you know, very racial and, and threatening posts on, on Facebook. And, again, I think it just ties back into the, the racial tensions, um, growing racial tra- uh, tensions between Indigenous and non-Indigenous residents. Whitehaven's uh, one of the biggest companies in the area, uh, one of the mm-hmm. biggest employers. Uh, what connection have they got and what relationship uh, have they got with uh, the local community, especially with uh, the traditional owners? Mm. There's multiple mines in Canada, but the unemployment rate is still over 10%, according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics census data in 2021. So, you know, there's still massive, you know, unemployment. Um, You know, Whitehaven have said... You know, publicly something about 16% employment. I'm not too sure, you know, what the numbers are, but my feeling in the community and the people I speak to and, and fellow members at the Red Chief Local Aboriginal Land Council, um, you know, that we're members of, um, the feeling is, you know, Whitehaven aren't doing enough. Again, if you look at 
the Australian Bureau of Statistics census data from 2006 when the, these miners started, you know, pitching up tent and mining the area compared to, you know, 2021, the latest census data. Um, even though there's been some uh, employment increases, you know, some medium pay increases, you, you've got to even that up, um, not just with the environmental damage, but also the social damage in relation to, like, rent. The rent increase, you know, from 2006 was around about $100, $120. Now, according to realestate.com.au, when I looked at it a couple of weeks ago, the medium rent in Gunda is now $450. Medium house price is, you know, almost half a million dollars. So some of those gains that the, you know, some Aboriginal people here have got through employment and, and the increase in the medium income has actually been kind of consumed by the extra cost, you know, just from the mines uh, that are a major influence, like in the housing market. And, you know, there's been a decrease in um, actually Aboriginal people owning their house outright, like, you know, wealth. Um, there has been an increase um, in mortgages, but again, that's you know, debt um, that they have to pay off. Um, so it's not exactly wealth until they actually pay it off. And and then renters, two Aboriginal renters, renting the house has basically become unaffordable for many Aboriginal members, especially you know the younger generation. And I think there was like around about seven, eight percent decrease in renting, you know, from 2006 and to 2021 just because you know it's, it's unaffordable and that's that's what I'm hearing and supposedly you know it has been brought to the attention of Whitehaven and the other mines that you know housing unaffordability because of the mines in Gunda is a real issue and you know it needs to be solved. So the presence of Whitehaven in the area as one of the biggest employers uh, is contributing to a rise in uh, inequalities and not only that uh, the company's alleged employees are contributing to the rise in uh, racial tensions. So this could mean the presence of uh, this mining giant uh, is uh, contributing to actually widening the gap. You know, the, how they get approved is, you know, they always promise a lot of jobs, sometimes more than what they actually deliver. And so Whitehaven actually, yeah, 2,500 across, you know, multiple areas around New South Wales, uh, you know, supposedly around 16% are Aboriginal. Um, but, you know, I know a lot of Aboriginal people put in CV, uh, CVs and, you know, resumes and, you know, still waiting and there's no, like, pipeline to upskill these Aboriginals in communities and, and get them into the jobs when the opportunities come up. And then if you look at, you know, Whitehaven, they re- recorded a $1.4 billion profit last financial year and you know they spent 17 million dollars just increasing housing in Gunda because there's a shortage uh, just for their own employees but you know what about the Aboriginal people struggling to find a house and and rent a house because of the massive increase of rent since you know 2006 when these miners started coming into Gunda again it's one of those things too right like they say you know, 16% but like how many of those jobs are actually trainees or internships and that kind of stuff uh, or you know actual full-time and high-paying jobs so 
Now, coming back to your opinion piece and uh, the alarm you're raising about the prevalence of racism, you say the situation involves uh, predominantly three people, and one of them is identified as a white haven employee. Are the two others in any way or another linked to the mining giant as well? Uh, so it hasn't been confirmed with the other one, Aaron. Um, but yeah, it hasn't been confirmed yet if he is and. The other one, um, you know, with weapons and who, you know, might be potential threats, um, I haven't asked yet. But they haven't, yeah, they haven't confirmed uh, either, you know, all the names uh, at this time. So you've contacted Whitehaven for clarification. And uh, what did they say? They haven't got back to me yet. Um, I tagged the the CEO, uh, Paul Flynn, you know, on LinkedIn. Um, I haven't heard anything back. He never, you know, replied with a comment or anything. So just no word from Whitehaven yet. Now, one of the people involved, uh, you've named them because uh, they've made uh, slurs on social media, uh, precisely on Facebook, under their own name. A second person, you say, is using an alias. And uh, the third one is making direct threats, not just insults and slurs. They also have access to firearms and are threatened to use them. And this is a situation that uh, elevates the risk to the community as well. Yeah, 100%. And the one with the firearms just um, updated his profile pic on Facebook, you know, with over a, a half a dozen you know, rifles, you know, very threatening. And he's one of, you know, the most active in this, you know, Facebook group that seems to be, you know, very indigenous and, and stalking Pacific people within the community and showcasing, you know, very concerning behaviour. Um, yeah. I have uh, submitted a, a, you know, concern to New South Wales Police questioning, you know, does he have a licence for these firearms and, you know, if he does, you know, what are you doing about it? Because there seems to be, you know, quite a, a risk based on his behaviour. In your piece, you say you reported the situation to the police, but uh, you also mention uh, troubling behaviour by the police themselves towards Indigenous people in Ganda. You mention the case especially of a false accusation against a young fella falsely accused by the police for allegedly stealing a bike uh, that he bought with his own money. Yeah, which is very concerning when you consider, you know, the New South Wales police is supposed to protect everybody, but when you hear about incidents like that, you know, from an Aboriginal person saying that their Aboriginal grandson, you know, 16-year-old, just bought a new bike and, you know, was riding it down the street and gets pulled over by the police, you immediately start interrogating him and and basically implying that, you know, it was stolen and, um, and that kind of behaviour, you know, it's really uh, concerning because, you know, not only the treatment of Aboriginal youth, um, you know, that, that whole perception, like, you know, what are they going to do if Aboriginal people are, are calling with genuine concerns? Like, they're probably not going to be as interested um, just because, you know, we're Aboriginal kind of thing. In your opinion, piece, you say that members of the community have started reacting, uh, including uh, writing an open letter to Whitehaven. What other actions have been taken? There's been a few calls to Whitehaven that I'm aware of um, from different people. Obviously, I'm from Gunda, Aboriginal member, uh, you know, a part of the, the Gamoray native title, family is, you know, traditional status and all that kind of stuff. So I just, yeah, read a letter to Paul Flynn just, you know, expressing their concerns because on their website they talk about values, you know, looking after community and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, when 
alleged you know employees are posting really racist and threatening stuff towards the Aboriginal community in Canada. Um, don't know if you know other Aboriginal communities where Whitehaven operate are experiencing similar things, but yeah, it's just really concerning. So I wrote a letter, tagged him in it. Haven't received a reply. Haven't received anything from Whitehaven. Like I've sent emails. Um, you know, called multiple times. I've CC'd uh, Paul Flynn, the CEO managing director, expressing my concerns, and it's uh, been a bit radio silence um, at the moment. Now, Dean Foley, anything else you'd like to add uh, to the conversation? I guess I will say, you know, these mining companies, they like to, you know, promote, and they do sometimes do good work in the community in relation to employment. But I think... You know, the governments, when they're approving these mines or coal mines or, you know, gas mines and that kind of stuff, they, they need to take a look at the broader impact it's having in the Aboriginal community. I mean, we see native title groups taking these big mining companies to court about the environmental impact, but you also got to look at the actual negatives, the social negative impacts from, you know, potential uh, people that you know, moving into the community and these mining companies, or in Gunda anyways, they don't, they don't, uh, as far as I know, they don't have any Aboriginal education programs to educate, you know, their employees about Aboriginal people in community. And so there's no real education. And again, it just increases that racial tensions when you, you move people in that may, may not be used to, you know, living with Aboriginal community or know an Aboriginal person. And um, I don't know if you've heard before, but, you know, for us in a mining community, a big mining community, you know, that affordability of housing and the dream of owning Aboriginal people owning their house and, and, and or even renting a house is, you know, quite massive. So, it's, you know, it'd be nice if politicians don't just, look at it as, oh, yeah, they're going to employ some Aboriginal people in the community, like take a holistic approach about you know, potential increases in rent, um, you know, potential racial uh, tensions between the Aboriginal communities and, um, you know, the fly-in, fly-out workers that they uh, employ. And, uh, yeah. Dean Foley, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today about the situation prevailing in Canada, uh, your hometown. Great to have you on. Thank you. Your community, your conversation. NITV Radio. Visit sbs.com.au slash NITV Radio. Welcome back. I'm your host, Luana Grant. A number of Australian gold medal prospects are getting ready to head to the Pacific Games in the Solomon Islands, some with hopes to qualify for the 2024 Paris Olympics. It's the largest contingent of Australian athletes ever sent to the four yearly regional championships with a distinctly Pacific Islander touch. Australia's super heavyweight boxing champion, Tara Moana Jr. Tara Moana. He's an imposing 198 centimetres tall and 122 kilograms of muscle and single-minded determination. The 21-year-old is off to the Solomon Islands for his first Pacific Games. My heritage is Cook Island, so to me it's like I'm really excited to participate in this because we get to find out who's the champion of the Pacific and I know it's going to be me. 
Tara Moana is one of 72 Australians who will put on the green and gold for the 17th Pacific Games, joining thousands of athletes from 24 oceanic nations to compete for regional glory. Australia has participated since 2015. It usually does not compete in most Pacific Games events and just sends development squads, but this year is different. In boxing, gold for Terra Moana at these Games means direct qualification for the Paris 2024 Olympics. I want to engrave my family's name into like history. So even if I go to the Olympics, like boom, it's there. Or win the gold medal, boom, I've done my job. She's been called the strongest woman in the Pacific, champion weightlifter Aileen Thikamatana. Fijian-born with Tongan and Chinese heritage, this Australian has won gold at consecutive Commonwealth Games, one for each country. It's a dream come true. It's the biggest opportunity that has ever come in my life. I'm proudly to say that I'm happy and proud to represent Australia. Like Tara Moana for Aileen, these Games are her first. Her path to the Olympics will involve more international meets to build her ranking. But when she's about to lift, she thinks of only one thing. I am my own opponent. I compete within myself and try to be a better athlete of who I was at my last competition. The competition among the Pacific's best athletes starts in Solomon Islands this weekend. And that story was produced by Stefan Ambuster for SBS News. And you can watch the opening ceremony for the Pacific Games on NITV this Sunday at 7pm. And the Games will be live streamed on SBS On Demand and Viceland from November 20 at 12pm. NITV Radio, Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 1pm or anytime online. On Saturday, the 18th of November, Charleston University Riverina Playhouse will be the venue for the first ever TEDx Wagga Wagga event. Held on Wiradjuri Country, the event will feature a lineup of eight inspiring speakers. And today, I'm pleased to be joined by proud Wiradjuri man Bernard Higgins, who will be one of the speakers featured in the inaugural event. Bernard, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me today on NITV Radio. G'day, that's not a problem. Firstly, I do have to say that you and I went to uni together and we graduated from the Certificate in Wiradjuri Language, Culture and Heritage course at CSU and I can't believe that was almost a year ago. Like, time has, like, flown. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, when you stop and think about it, just time has just gone just in a blur. Yeah, it was awesome. It was such a great experience. I do want to touch on your time um, at the course as well and and your personal experience from that. But firstly, before we get into it, I just want to touch on a little bit about yourself. If you just want to give a little intro to the audience about what you do and what you're passionate about. Yeah, so my name's Bernard Higgins. I am a proud Rotary man. I was born here in Wagga Wagga. I grew up in a small town not far from here called Leeson. Um, yeah, both sides of my family have ties to Wiradjuri. Um, one, my dad's side was in Narendra, the Leeson area, and my mum's side in the Yarrabalong area. Um, I graduated from uni uh, with a Bachelor's of Animation and Visual Effects in 2019, and then I did my honours in... Uh, and I graduated from that in 2021, where I did a thesis on uh, using animation for 
remote First Nations communities to do animal health care um, communication. Um, but yeah, as Laurie said, we we both graduated from the grad cert in Rugby Language and Culture and Heritage. And I'm very passionate about like language reclamation and how I can use my skills in like animation and um, film editing and film recording. Um, and yeah, so at the moment that's what I'm currently working on. I'm, I work full time as a an animator slash filmer, film editor. And a lot of my projects are based around Rugby Language and Culture. Yeah, awesome. Thanks for that, Bernard. And as I mentioned at the start of the interview, you've been selected as one of eight speakers that will be featured at the first ever TEDx in Wagga. Congratulations. That's so exciting. And how did this first come about and how did you get involved? Yeah, so I just saw a, a, a call out on Facebook for locals to pitch ideas. And I thought it looked really exciting. I spoke to one of the local elders, Annie Cheryl, and she actually said she was on one of the she was on the selection panel. So I figured, knowing that there was that cultural safety and there was some integrity about it and and all of that, I felt safe to pitch an idea. And I went along for the night and was selected. Yeah, congratulations. It's amazing. And I did see that Arnie Cheryl was a part of organising and um, curating as well. So that's really great that she was able to be involved as well. And that, you know, that relationship that you have with her just feeling, you know, it's a safe space as well. So that's really awesome. And the theme for uh, TEDx is A Dance of Ideas, which has taken inspiration from the meaning of Wagga Wagga, which is a place of dance and celebration. And the program has been specifically crafted to embody the theme. So I guess without giving too much away of what you're going to talk about, would you be able to give us a little bit of an insight into your TED Talk? Yeah, so pretty much my TEDx talk is going to be on what I do for work. So building on the stuff that we taught during the Asian language and culture and heritage subject and nation building, um, like, as you know, one of our assignments was to put together a, a nation-building project. And mine sort of tied into how in the animation and film world that there's definitely different skills needed for different areas. Like in animation, there's 3D modelling, editing, sound design, etc., etc. You might need actors in motion capture suits. Um and when I'm working on Wiradjuri specific projects, I of course would love to be able to include everyone in the project as a Wiradjuri person because it's our language and our culture. So I'm just sort of talking about how building the Wiradjuri nation up and um, while also doing language reclamation and what I can do in the that space with my animations and why that's important to me and why it's a passion of mine. So that's, that's basically the TEDx talk. Yeah, awesome. And as I mentioned before, we went to uni together and what was that experience like for you? What, it, what did it mean to you personally to be able to learn our Wiradjuri language, culture and heritage and, you know, just that connection with mob as well and building those beautiful relationships that we've taken from being together at uni 
and, you know, still keeping in touch today and building on what we've learned. How did you find that whole experience? Um, yeah, like I, I know um, my own personal sort of journey, you, you have a little bit of culture here and there, a little bit of language that you might pick up, but coming to a, a space where you've got amazing staff like Leticia and um, being able to build up a relationship with someone like Uncle Stan Grant and um, then, of course, all your peers and classmates. Um, and you build this really strong relationship of, like, which is, like, tied into culture and language. And, like, being able to learn your own language, like... I I graduated when I was 39 and like I'm still on that journey of trying to become fluent but like it's it's it gets really emotional because you start thinking about like what why we have gotten to this point and being able to build those friendships and relationships while also reclaiming things that are rightfully yours because it's your language and culture um, it's such a positive vibe, and then when you when you consider the connections and friendships and stuff, and like we said earlier, it's been a year since we had graduation, but it's been um, like we still keep in touch. And just recently, some other graduates have been in Wagga doing a. Um, some workshops on contemporary dance and things like that. It's just, I don't know, it's really inspiring and it's nice to be able to share that with others. Yeah, it's definitely, I think, when we were there at the course, just being able to spend that time together and, you know, create these relationships and seeing now a year on from graduation where everyone's kind of going with it and what they've taken away from the course and how they're giving back to mm-hmm. the nation. I feel like it's just a really, you know, like we're passing on this legacy that we've been given and we're all doing it in different ways, but in our own way. And I think it's really nice to be able to see just where everyone's going with it. And, you know, like what you're doing, it's so amazing. Um, you know, all the work that you do in the community and now being able to do this TED talk, that's really, um, you know, it's such a, a big moment for you. So I also wanted to touch on the event itself, it actually sold out super fast, which is amazing um, for it also being the first time that it's been held in Wagga. But for people who won't be attending, where can they watch the event? Is there like a live stream link or anything? Uh, Yes, there will be a live stream and it will be recorded as well. Finally, the event is only a few days away. How are you feeling um, about Saturday? Are you feeling excited? It's such a great opportunity. Yeah, like there's all that anxiety and nerves of public speaking and all of that. But apart from that, like it's exciting. Um, Knowing that I can, like, even though I'm still on that journey of language reclamation and where I'm fitting in the Rangri Nation and building up others, but I'm still being able to have a platform where I can stand up and proudly speak about why it's important to Rapi people to um, speak their own language, practice their own culture, and how I'm part
part of that process. Like we're all, um, I'm only one small cog in like the machine, I guess, of the Rugby Nation, but it all adds up together. And like you were saying, it's like really inspiring to be able to get up. And I'm hoping that uh, um, passion comes through um, on the night because, yeah, it's, I don't know, it's super exciting to be able to think that I'm able to actually just get up and talk about things that we um, we do that may not necessarily get appreciated sometimes by the wider community. Bernard Mundungor, thank you so much for chatting with me today and all the best for Saturday. I'm really, really proud of you. You're going to be amazing and I'll definitely be watching on the live stream. I wish I could be there in person, but I'll definitely be watching. And to anyone out there that wants to watch, you can watch on the Facebook live stream as well. So Bernard, thank you so much again for chatting with me today. Not a problem. Thanks for having a chat. Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. And that's all we have time for on today's program. NITV Radio will be back on Friday. I'm your host, Lawana Grant-Mandungor. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day.